This is Lisa DeLay, and you are listening to the Spark My Muse podcast. This is Soul School Lesson 172, The Spiral Staircase. As you probably know, this program features many different books and many different authors. Something different we're doing this year is having a book club. Every first Wednesday of the month at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, the book club meets for a live discussion with the author. It's someone whose book has been featured on the podcast, and you are invited to attend. To get more information, just go to sparkmymuse.com and click on the book club tab to get more information and make sure to register to save a spot. Space is limited for these, but you can also come back and see a replay of them if you can't make it to the live event or if you can't find space. Today I want to talk about a book that came out in 2004 by the noted author and historian Karen Armstrong. It was a national bestseller called The Spiral Staircase, My Climb Out of Darkness. Karen is probably most known for her best-selling book called A History of God, The 4,000-Year Quest of Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And she is a religious historian that focuses primarily on the Abrahamic traditions, but also covers Buddhism and Hinduism and other religions as well. And she, at the age of 17, became a nun in a convent for seven years. This is a memoir that she made that describes some of her journey and the extreme difficulty she had during those times. It's a fascinating read, and I'm going to read the back jacket to give you a taste of what's in the book, and then go on to read just a few snippets within the book that really caught my eye and I thought would be helpful today for us. On the back jacket, it says, in 1962, at the age of 17, Karen Armstrong entered a convent eager to meet God. After seven brutally unhappy years as a nun, she left the order to pursue English literature at Oxford. But convent life had profoundly altered her, and coping with the outside world and her expiring faith proved to be excruciating. Her deep solitude and terrifying illness, diagnosed only years later as epilepsy, marked her forever as an outsider. In her own mind, she was a complete failure as a nun, as an academic, and as a normal woman capable of intimacy. Her future seemed much in question until she stumbled into comparative theology. What she found in learning, thinking, and writing about other religions was the ecstasy and transcendence she had never felt as a nun. Gripping, revelatory, and inspirational, The Spiral Staircase is an extraordinary account of an astonishing spiritual journey. If you get a chance to read any of Karin's books, you'll find them intriguing, insightful, mesmerizing, really. What Karin has come to understand is that at the root of all religions is the effort to lead us toward compassion that makes life easier. And she says on page 293, the one and only test of a valid religious idea, doctrinal statement, spiritual experience, or devotional practice was that it must lead directly to practical compassion. Compassion was the litmus test, she found out. And so what do we mean by compassion? She says on page 290, Compassion does not, of course, mean to feel pity or to condescend, but to feel with this was the method I found to be essential when writing Mohammed. It demanded what St. Paul called a kenosis, an emptying of self that would lead to enlargement 
and an enhanced perspective. It was not enough to understand other people's beliefs, rituals, and ethical practices intellectually. You have to feel them too and make an imaginative, though disciplined, identification. The importance here is feeling emotion and not just a calculated and so called objective identification. She wondered why until finally the doctrine, the idea, or the practice became transparent, and then she could see the living kernel of truth within. This was an insight that excited her. I would not leave an idea until I could to some extent experience it myself and understand why a Jew, a Christian, or a Muslim felt in this way. I found that one of my new luminaries, the late Canadian scholar Wilfred Cantwell Smith, himself a Christian minister, had made his students live according to Muslim law when he was teaching Islamic studies at McGill University. They had to pray five times a day, prostrating themselves in the direction of Mecca, observe the fasts and dietary laws, and give alms. Why? Because Cantwell Smith believed you could not understand the truth of a religion by simply reading about its beliefs. The tradition became alive only when you lived it and observed those rituals that were designed to open a window on transcendence. But I can almost hear an exasperated reader ask, what is this truth? Does this woman believe in God or not? Is there or is there not anything out there? Does she believe that God, that the God of the Bible exists or does she? Or does she not worship a personal God? These are surely the truth claims of religion. And all this talk about compassion, empathy, and religion as an art form is merely a distraction from the real issue. To believe or not to believe, that is surely the religious question, is it not? Well, no. To my very great surprise, I was discovering that some of the most eminent Jewish, Christian, and Muslim theologians and mystics insisted that God was not an objective fact was not another being and was not an unseen reality like an atom whose existence could be empirically demonstrated. Some went so far as to say that it was better to say that God did not exist because our notion of existence was too limited to apply to God. Many of them preferred to say that God was nothing, capital N, because this was not the kind of reality that we normally encountered. It was even misleading to call God the supreme being because, because that simply suggested a being like us, but bigger and better, with likes and dislikes similar to our own. For centuries, Jews, Christians, and Muslims had devised audacious new theologies to bring this point home to the faithful. The doctrine of the Trinity, for example, was crafted in part to show that you could not think about God as a simple personality. The reality that we call God is transcendent, that is, it goes beyond any human orthodoxy, and yet God is also the ground of all being and can be experienced almost as a presence in the depths of the psyche. All traditions went out of their way to emphasize that any idea we had of God bore no absolute relationship to the reality itself, which went beyond it. Our notion of a personal God is one symbolic way of speaking about the divine, but it cannot contain the far more elusive reality. Most would agree with the Greek Orthodox that any statement about God had to have two characteristics. It must be paradoxical to remind us that God cannot be contained in a neat, coherent system of thought, and it must be apophatic. That is, it should lead us to a moment of silent awe or wonder, because when we are speaking of the reality of God, we are at the end of what words or thoughts can usefully do. 
Cantwell Smith was one of the first theologians to make all this clear to me in such books as Faith and Belief and Belief in History. I remember the extraordinary sense of relief I felt when I read in his somewhat dry scholarly prose that our ideas of God were man-made, and they could be nothing else, and that, and that it was a modern Western fallacy dating only from the 18th century to equate faith with accepting certain intellectual positions about God. Faith was really the cultivation of a conviction that life had some ultimate meaning and value, despite the tragic evidence to the contrary, an attitude also evoked by great art. The Middle English word beloved originally meant to love, and the Latin credo, I believe, probably derived from the phrase cordeau, I give my heart. St. Anselm of Canterbury had written, Credo und intellegum, usually translated, I believe, in order that I may understand. I had always assumed that this meant I had to discipline my rebellious mind and force it to bow to the official orthodoxy, and that as a result of this submission, I would learn to understand a higher truth. This had been the foundation of my training in the convent, but no. Cantwell Smith explained, Credo und intelligem, I commit myself in order that I may understand. You must first live in a certain way, and then you could encounter within a sacred presence that which monotheists call God, but which others have called the Tao, Brahman, or Nirvana. But did that mean we could think what we liked about God? No. Here again the religious traditions were in unanimous agreement. The one and only test of a valid religious idea, doctrinal statement, spiritual experience, or devotional practice was that it must lead directly to practical compassion. If your understanding of the divine made you kinder, more empathetic, and impelled you to express this sympathy in concrete ways of loving kindness, this was good theology. But if your notion of God made you unkind, belligerent, cruel, or self-righteous, or if it led you to kill in God's name, it was bad theology. Compassion was the litmus test. For the prophets of Israel, for the rabbis of the Talmud, for Jesus, for Paul, for Muhammad, not to mention Confucius, Lao Tzu, the Buddha, or the sages of the Upanishads. In killing Muslims and Jews in the name of God, the Crusaders had simply projected their own fear and loathing onto a deity which they had created in their own image and likeness, thereby giving this hatred a seal of absolute approval. A personalized God can lead easily to this type of idolatry, which is why the more thoughtful Jews, Christians, and Muslims insisted that while you could begin by thinking of God as a person, God transcended personality as, quote, he, unquote, went beyond all human categories. So what we see here in Karin's writing is that the ideas of belief, the ideas of creed, have to do with understanding with the heart or understanding with the feeling mind, with something that involves emotion and not just rational thought or an ascension to strictly rational belief or faith that has empirical evidence alone. It has to do with experience and it has to do with changed lives, ones that create empathy in us toward compassion that is lived out and acted out. If that doesn't happen, we have a false or useless religion. That's true in Christianity, in Judaism, or any religion. 
Karen has a fascinating and sharp mind, and she really lays out some beautiful things in all of her work, and especially in this memoir, which talks about her terrible struggles with undiagnosed epilepsy. And if you'd like a good read, this book, The Spiral Staircase, My Climb Out of Darkness, is really a good read. The November 2020 read is Reconnect Spiritual Restoration from Digital Distraction by Ed Szeski. And this book is very timely. We are living in a time of COVID-19 and lockdown and more time on Zoom and on our computers and living distance lives from other people. And so understanding how the digital world affects us and transforms us and spiritually forms us or, or malforms us is very important. His book is about prayer and about connection and how we create meaningful relationships with each other in this particular age and time. But this is an evergreen topic. It will be something we have to revisit lifelong. And it's especially pertinent to, to younger people who have grown up with a very interconnected world that doesn't leave much time for reflection, silence, or remembering who we are as natural, non-mechanized organisms. I want to remind you that Spark My Muse has over 355 episodes, and you might only see that there's 100. So go to sparkmymuse.com and go to the archives. You'll find episodes that start in April 2015, and they're fantastic ones for you to enjoy. So give yourself a field trip and go to sparkmymuse.com and explore everything that's there. And I thank you so much for listening. May blessing, grace, and peace be yours.